Welcome to the Talk of the T-Town podcast, where we discuss all things track cycling. Broadcasting from the Valley Preferred Cycling Center, I'm your host and executive director, Joan Hanscom, along with my co-host, athletic director, Andy Lakatosh. Welcome to the Talk of the Teen Town podcast. I'm Joan Hanscom, Executive Director of the Velodrome. I'm joined by my co-host, Director of Athletics, Andy Lakatosh, and this week's guest, Andrew Harris, Founder, Performance Director, and Head Coach of Edge Cycling. Before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to thank everybody who said nice things about the pod, left a positive comment, or subscribed. Without subscribers, we can't grow, so thank you. We love bringing you these diverse conversations and look forward to sharing more as we move forward into the new year. And finally, one more thing. We're extremely thankful to our sponsor, Bebron, who is essential in helping us launch this podcast. And we're looking forward to seeing them here at the track in the summer of 2021. And now, on with the show. As we mentioned, this week's guest is Andrew Harris, founder of the Edge Cycling Team. Andrew has a long history in the sport, both as a competitor, strength coach, and performance coach. In just a few short years, the EDGE program has amassed more than 150 national championship medals, including 52 elite national championships. The EDGE program has sent its athletes to the Junior World Championships, Pan Am Championships, World Cups, World Championships, and had one athlete selected to both the 2016 and 2020 long team for the Olympics. Andrew himself has traveled with USA Cycling to coach the sprint program at the World Cups and World Championships. Andrew, welcome to the pod, and thank you for joining us. Even though it's virtual, let's jump right in and say it's good to see you. We had a super weird summer here at the track, uh, and we all made the best of it, but your athletes in particular really appeared to stay focused and committed in a year would have been really easy to let your foot off the accelerator. Um, So talk to us about the year Edge had, how you approached this past summer, and how you see all of that hard work paying off as we move forward into 2021. Okay, uh, first of all, thanks uh, Joan and Andy and Mara for, for having me on the podcast. This is a, a great avenue and uh, you know, it's always great to be involved with the, uh, the Valley Preferred Cycling Center. And again, our thanks too from Ed Cycling to B. Bronda and the rest of the sponsors for uh, for putting putting on this the podcast. Um, yeah. and, and uh, 2020, as, as you said, has been a most unusual year. Um, very odd. Uh, I hope we never see another one like it. Um, yeah, I, just to kind of give you, a, I don't even remember the timeline, but I, I think I was in Berlin, came back to for came back home for like two days, and then we took our developmental athletes up to uh, Canada for the provincial championships, and that's kind of when. The word, the COVID word, was getting out, and we had a week uh, a week off scheduled when we got back, and uh, that's when the shutdowns began. So uh, the first thing we did was that we had a meeting with our athletes. Uh, some I met in person, some we did a Zoom a Zoom meeting with, and uh, you know our, our the theme of our meeting was, hey, we've got a big situation ahead of us here, and the biggest situations require the biggest responses. You know, so we can uh, you know we can. Basically, we can feel sorry for ourselves, um, or we can take take advantage of this and, and use it uh, as an opportunity to get better. And you know, we'll, we'll have this big opportunity if there's not racing to put these sequential training blocks together and and to get better because we have a lot of ground to make up on with our young guys uh, on the in the international field. And um, so that's kind of kind of way we're, the message that we gave. Um, and the cool thing was I didn't really have to sell it. They were they were really excited about it. I'm speaking to our more of our, our older elite guys right now, but uh, they, they were super excited about it, you know, and there was the time period where we didn't know whether there were going to be a national championships or not. And one of our, you know, faster developing sprinters told me, because we hope there's not, you know, we want to be able to, to basically train for 12 or 18 months uninterrupted and, and just get better and help close, you know, close that gap between ourselves and the international riders. And, and like you said, Joan, there's there's no taking your foot off the accelerator because you know there's there's people out there that are getting better. If you take your foot off, you just coast, you're going backwards. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. And uh, so, you know, they uh, not only accepted the challenge, but they, they were excited by the challenge and we've responded really well. I think that was really evident when we saw your athletes here at the track every day, right? They, they yeah. were clearly committed, they were clearly motivated. 
Um, there was no hanging of the heads. And, and I think what's interesting in, in what you said, Andrew, is it sort of mirrors what, what I've heard Jim Miller say um, in that the goal hasn't changed, just the date on the calendar changed. And I think if you can frame it that way for athletes, uh, that's really useful, right? That's a helpful way of envisioning it. And, and it's actually opportunity to address some weaknesses. It's an opportunity to, to go back and say, hey, what did I do wrong the first time? Or not necessarily even wrong, but what did I learn and what can I do better? I, I have the luxury of time to address these things. Um, and so I think, and I think Andy, uh, your big picture athletes were sort of the same, right? You you kept everybody motivated and it was it was great to see. Um, yeah, and- no, we had a very similar experience. I mean, everything started to go haywire and, you know, we didn't really have a lot of direction and things were uncertain. And I saw it as an opportunity to, to lead, right? That's what people are paying us as coaches to do is to lead them. And I was like, well, we need to lead now more than ever. And similar to Andrew, um, when I said, hey, we want to stay on the gas and, you know, in a sense, pretend like this isn't happening and we just keep training full, full gas. We got a resounding, absolutely, right? Like no one wanted to let off the gas. And, you know, when I talked to other uh, national team coaches, it was largely the same thing. It was largely just, you know, now's, now's the catch up time. Like we're not letting off. And so I'm super interested to see what happens at like that First Nations Cup because I think everybody is going to have gotten a lot faster but nobody's <laughs> nobody's really raced so it's going to be interesting to see if they all just have all this speed and and not a lot of race savvy from you know well over a year of of not racing i mean there's some racing happening here and there but not not in in mass so i think we're going to see a lot of really fast times and like the 2021 olympics is going to be super interesting to see i feel like this I feel like this especially blew it wide open for who could possibly jump up and grab a medal or grab a really great result that maybe we didn't see coming. Andrew, what are your thoughts on that? How do you see all this hard work paying off as we move forward? Uh, Yeah, I think Andy's like spot on. I think we'll see some big, you know, where guys have just had this, this period of time to, to focus on uh, getting stronger and faster. I think we'll see some pretty spectacular times, uh, coming in the in the new year um yeah i, th- I think everybody's going to be better you know they're they're certainly the big countries you know holland and and great britain and australia and germany and you know they're not backing off you know it's uh it's, it's not you know in their nature to back off and uh it's it's going to be an exciting year and it's going to be super exciting to get get back to racing just get back to racing yeah no no doubt i think we're all we're all hankering for that at this point um, Fortunately, you know, uh, you know, just a, a, you know, the the ocean spray time trials in the summer were were huge. You know, they, um, we just kind of we finished a big training block in June, and you know, normally we would have kind of tapered leading into our nationals, and then we're no national championships, so we had the ocean spray series. So we decided, you know, we're not going to taper. We're going right back to work, and you know, and then start another training block. But it did. It gave our athletes a uh, a competitive environment to be in. Um, it gave them a, um, uh, you know, just, just an opportunity for the younger riders to, to practice pre-race routine and stuff. So that was a huge, huge thing for us. Um, and the interesting thing with us is I work with two very different, you know, groups of athletes, you know, um, some that are, that are knocking on the door of international competition and some that are just getting their feet wet brand new to the sport of cycling. So, you know, I, I wasn't as concerned with the more elite guys because, you know, they have uh, a very strong clarity of what we're trying to achieve. And um, they're, they're committed, you know, to, to the long picture, long, long-term picture. Um, but what we call our foundation athletes, so the, uh, the younger guys that are just getting their feet wet. Some have just been through the community programs of the Velodrome, the Air Products Program or, the, or BRL and that kind of thing. And they haven't even really been exposed to competition um, but they've responded really well too, and I'm especially proud of, of the way they they've handled themselves and have endured through this long period of no racing, even though they don't even may not even know what racing is at this point. Yeah, those, I think those time trials were really important mm-hmm. um, for the community in that 
um, and, and maybe I'm reading the tea leaves wrong, but I think that consistency of the race experience, right, that every Saturday we knew there was racing, it kept people in the habit, if, if even if it wasn't about performance necessarily. Um, although I, I think across the board, we saw people really changing their focus and going for personal best efforts, uh, even if they were in sort of disciplines that weren't their traditional discipline. I think that establishing that habit was really important for us here at the track. I know over the fall, I saw so many people commenting that, oh, not being up at 5 a.m. and standing in cold, muddy cyclocross pits all fall long was pretty nice. I, I learned to appreciate my weekends. And I wonder what that's going to be the overall impact of that on racing, sort of broadly speaking. And so for me, I think, you know, here for the track community, having that consistency of opportunity to train and that consistency of opportunity to race, even if it wasn't traditional racing, Mm -hmm. I think that really mattered in terms of just keeping that pattern in your brain, right? You know, because it's, it's easy to habits are easy to break you know like oh two weeks without racing and oh gee this is kind of nice um so for me I, I liked that we gave people that opportunity to 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 have that consistency of experience to maintain the habit um and to make to maintain a reason um to keep showing up so um I, i'm glad i'm glad your athletes felt the benefit of that as well uh, i think it's going to be important for us as a community moving forward um, so one thing that I've been curious about, and we were talking about it in the, in the pre, pre-show chit-chat, was, was endurance athletes. And um, edge cycling used to be known as sprinter's edge. Um, and you're certainly known for developing serious sprint talent. Mandy Marquart, James Mellon, um, you've traveled with USA Cycling in a sprint coach capacity. Uh, tell us about the name change to edge cycling and has the focus of the program changed and and taking on a more endurance focus as well or or what's what's behind that andrew yeah a great question yeah we we started uh at or sprinter's edge in 2012 with it i believe it was with just a couple of athletes and and i saw you know a need for there was no real uh sprint coaching in the area at that at that time um so we kind of wanted to to fill that void, and you know, I've always had a passion for, for for the sprinters and the and then sprint cycling. Um, but no, our focus hasn't changed. Uh, I'd say it's only expanded. You know, our, our aim is uh, is to develop the athlete and an athlete that happens to be a cyclist, basically. Um, so, you know, our our goal with our development program is develop is to uh, prepare uh, take a young athlete and prepare them for the the very intensive and uh, the high volume of training uh, that's going to be necessary for them to compete at the the top level, and that's independent of uh, their their specialty, whether it be track endurance or, or, or sprint. Um, you know the. You know what we're looking at is you know just simply to prepare them so they can handle uh, the exercises and the the training load. Uh, at a later date when they reach the, the age of athletic maturity, which is typically, you know, the late junior years or possibly, you know, the early by the time they the U23 level and on into the senior ranks. Um, you know, it's an eight, it's an eight to 10 year process plus. And uh, so our, our focus hasn't, hasn't changed. It's just probably expanded to, to include the endurance rider. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned James Mellon. He, he's a perfect example. Um, of, of a long-term development program I saw James in, in BRL at the, the Velodromes program when he was uh, 15 years old and uh, J- James was never you know winning winning races and that kind of thing but I, I noticed you know some qualities I thought well this guy could be a pretty good bike racer he had a good good acceleration he might accelerate from eighth place in the pack to fourth place in the pack by the end of the race but you know you, you definitely could see some qualities that uh, pointed to him having potential as a uh, as a good cyclist. So I approached him and his parents, and uh, uh, it's kind of a funny story. They looked at me like I had two heads, and they told me, "Well, James is a is a very serious student, and he's an Eagle Scout, and and all this kind of stuff." And you know, like basically, we don't think he'll be interested in, in pursuing cycling at a, at a high <laughs> level. So 
Whoops. So I kind of left it alone and uh, he had some kind of, an, he broke his wrist and uh, you know, this is, I didn't have any contact with him, but he came back to me looking for, uh, they came back to me looking for coaching, you know, some months later. Um, but we got him started and, and J- interesting with James, James has not, uh, never played any kind of uh, typical stick and ball sports at all. He'd never, never been an athlete. So it was a real challenge taking him on, like in, in the, into the gym and stuff. I had absolutely no technique. Um, so, so it was, you know, we had to give him a, a very, very basic program for a year or two. In fact, the girls in their program uh, were, he, he still jokes about it. They lifted a lot more weight in the gym than he did starting out. That's and, funny. Uh, yeah. So, you know, but, you know, but we're the, developing the junior, um, two years later you know he was able to progress and he won a national championship you know represented the u.s at junior worlds and that kind of thing but that was all still on a very limited load of training and then he went to uh he stayed local and went to penn state lehigh valley for two years so we had a little a little more time i'd say to train during that period so we upped up up to his training volume and train load uh quite a bit during that period so you know, he went from basically an 11-0 junior rider to, you know, riding 10-3 or 10-4 um, outdoors on, on concrete during that time. And then the next period of James's uh, career, he went to, to Penn State, the main campus. And, you know, the, the workload there at school became much greater. Uh, the, the engineering program, he was and it was pretty demanding. So we took away some of his training load during that period, and some of it he just did selectively. But... Uh, you know, so he was kind of stagnant for a couple of years and, and just kind of stayed in that that kind of same speed range. And, you know, we knew we had to be patient during that time. And then and then he graduated. And, you know, well, that was the first time we gave him a full, you know, full time, what I'd call a world class training load. And uh, we didn't know how he would respond. Um, but obviously he responded really well to it. Um, but the, the point being is that it was a multi year process of uh, gradually bringing him to the level where he would, you know, when he was capable of taking on that world-class load of training, he would be able to handle it. And that's, you know, that's one of the big things that we look at uh, with an athlete is can, you know, with an elite athlete is can, can they handle workload? And uh, that's very important because it's, it's a, it's a huge, huge uh, volume of work they have to do to be an elite cyclist, whether they're sprint or endurance. Absolutely. I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but it's a a good tangent though. (laughs) No. So I, I, I actually find it super interesting what you said. It's, it's awesome to have that insight because by the time we see, you know, like a James or a Jeffrey Hoogerland or these guys rocking up and just delivering some insanely fast times, you really don't know the backstory and, and what went into him. And, And I really like the, the explanation of James because, you know, couple of things one we have some athletes we're working with right now that have like you said never played a sticker ball sport and it is amazing how much just basic movement even though like we're on a bike and we're pedaling circles we're not bounding side to side you know we're not moving laterally it's all very very longitudinal how, how we move on a bike there's so much that goes into just how you coordinate when when your mind says go what your body automatically does. And a lot of that comes from just basic movement stuff. And I remember when I did the level one coaching clinic, you know, they actually brought in um, a guy from USA hockey, like ice Mm -hmm. hockey, because, you know, all the NGBs are in the spring. So it's easy to do this type of thing. And I was like, why is a guy from hockey coming in to talk about, talk about cycling? And he, he, what they were talking about was their development program, you know, cause hockey starts really young, you know, six, seven, eight years old and goes all the way up through, through college, but how, you know, to X certain age, becoming a great hockey player is actually a lot about not playing hockey, right? It's just going out and riding a bike or playing soccer or doing these other basic movement stuff. And I think it's great that you explained and pointed some of that out. Cause I think it is really easy for, coaches in cycling and in track cycling specifically with power meters and stuff to start doing very specialized type of training very early on and you miss some of that basic stuff then you get kids that don't know how to handle bikes or don't know how to safely lift weights and i think that that's really really 
dangerous and upsetting because we're not laying some good foundation work. But it's interesting to know that about James and know that the guy that holds the track record and rode nine, nine and T down at sea level, you know, was, was getting outlifted at some points. I mean, it happens to all of us, but you know, talking about that transition from, from Devo into elite, you know, without going too far down that rabbit hole, we know the elite side of things here is, is is interesting but i'm a firm believer that you can do a lot on just working hard on your own and stuff and so i was wondering kind of if you'd be willing to share some of what your experience has been like traveling with the national team and what do you see as the future for elite sprinting in the u.s obviously you know you you had two of our top athletes um you know james went off to med school but you know mandy's still going strong what um you know, what do you see the next couple of years? And you got a lot of people coming up. What do you see elite sprinting looking like here in the U S in the next couple of years? Um, especially because the rest of the world is just, <laughs> the world's not slowing down and waiting for us. So we got a lot of catch up to play. Um, but yeah, I wonder if you'd share some of your experiences with that. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, you know, traveling with the national team is, you know, a fantastic experience. Um, you know, first class operation, uh, the riders are well looked after. Um, you know, when you're when you're when you're a coach, as you you know, at at a big event like that, uh, your your coaching role is a little different. You take on more of a support role. Um, you know, the hard work, the work is already done. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, offering some tactical advice. You know, maybe you know, keeping them on a, a, a emotional, uh, you know, help helping keep them emotionally in the game in the right mindset. Um, but, you know, a first-class organization, um, you know, given a rider that gets to that level, they're going to be sub- well-supported and uh, have every opportunity to succeed. So, um, U.S. in sprinting, um, my, my feeling is the U.S. Uh, can be and, and will be um, one of the top cycling, you know, or the top cycling, sprint cycling country in the world, bar none. There's no reason we... We can't be, you know. What what is stopping us? And and I have some thoughts on that. And you know, um, but but why not? I tell the kids all the time, you know, our, our guys now that are kind of knocking maybe a couple of years away from from an international performance. I'm saying, you know, what's stopping? Why not us? You know, what what is different about the guys than us? And there's there's absolutely nothing different, you know. And when when James Mellon was about 17, uh, Jeffrey Hoogland and Harry Lavreesen and and the Dutch squad were in T-Town. And, and I said to James, I looked, I said, look over there. I said, those guys put their, their pants on just like we do one leg at a time. And he looked at me like kind of cross-eyed. I don't, I don't think he understood what I was saying. I think he was taking it literally. In fact, just a couple of years ago, he told me, he goes, he goes, I finally figured out what you meant by that. Like, you know, that, that they're, they're no different than us. So I, I think we can be uh, absolutely be the, the top track sprint cycling country in the world. It's been a long time uh, since we've had a, a top sprinter. Um, I would say, um, you know, what there's going to, what I've seen is that the, I think this is the way it's got to work is I guess what I'm trying to say at, at the top level, we have, you know, the, the elite athlete um, division at USAC and, and, you know, they're all about winning, winning medals, you know, and, and, podium performances at the international level. And uh, when they have a rider that's, you know, capable of that or very, very close to being capable of that, you can count on them giving you full support. Um, I think, you know, what, where we've gone wrong as a sprint community over the years is, um, you know, we, we try to put the cart before the horse a little bit. Um, we need to, to get closer to that podium level, and we can do that. I think Andy, kind of, you kind of mentioned this. We can do so much of that right at home before you know we're we're chasing uh, chasing racing around the world. You know, we can do it right at home. Um, so at the top level, we have the elite athletes at, at elite athlete at elite athlete division at USA Cycling, and then I think what's got to happen. Uh, would be next is we got to have uh, clubs, you know, local or regional clubs and teams that are that are committed to uh, to sprinting and providing a world class ex- experience for the riders. You know, um, 
And to provide that kind of experience, I think um, these clubs or teams have to have a um, systems in place, you know, systems for training system, you know, physiological systems, nutrition systems, systems for psychology, technical, the tactical uh, models have to be in place. And they're not in place now because I don't think there's a lot of, there's, you know, only a handful of sprint coaches in the U S and I think there's gotta be a big emphasis placed on uh, coaching education and bringing the coaches up to speed and the clubs up to speed uh, so that they can pr provide this world-class experience for the athletes. And then uh, once that is in place, the most, I'd say the most important thing, you know, that's going to support that is the culture, you know, um, you know, and it's got to be a, a winning culture a no excuse, you know, no, uh, a no excuse culture, you know, we got to just get it done. And so most importantly, that culture and this whole system has got to be driven by the athletes. Um, and they've got to see that system that I think it's a club system that, that the clubs have to take you to a very high level and then you'll get the support from USA cycling. But until, you know, until then, so if we have the system in place, I think it gives the athletes something to believe in. Um, and, you know, cause the, the highest levels of performance are always, you know, come off the highest levels of belief. So that's just what I think it, it's got to happen. I think, you know, this, um, early or, or centralization of a developing athlete is a mistake. I think we need to actually decentralize it, um, put the, the responsibility and the, the ability uh, with the clubs and teams, the local clubs and teams, and let them develop the athlete. You know, we have athletes and, and coaches that I'm sure would, would love, love to be able to stay home and develop to their full potential, or close to their full potential before embarking on a lot of traveling. I know Andy has a follow-up question to that. I can see it in his yeah. face, but I have a follow-up yeah. question too mm -hmm. that I want to jump in with. Um, and it, and it's something that I've said for a long time and, and you touched on it is the club structure. Um, mm -hmm. And I think on the road, we saw the club structure really fall apart, right? That's how you learned skills when you were on learning to ride on the road too, right? You, you had a, a team that sort of taught you how the, riding on the road worked. It taught you all the, the basic skills of racing. Um, and the club structure has really taken a hit since 20, I think 2012, 2013 is when we really started to see the club club structures start to fall apart. I have to imagine that that gets even harder when you talk about a, a club structure focused on velodromes because there just aren't that many of them, right? So if you have, and, and they're all sort of in various states of, of usage, right? So I think what is there now, right now, 23 working tracks in the country um, versus 50 states where you have roads you can ride on. Um, I just love to hear you expand a little bit on the club structure before I let Andy jump in with his question, because I know they all sort of feed together, but, but that club piece is, I think, super important. Um, and I, you know, and, and I would say that I was sort of ringing that bell when I was at USA Cycling and certainly here, I, I think one of the things we look at is how do our community programs feed the local clubs here? And I, I think that's a really important role that we at the Velodrome can serve is, yes, we have the BRL, we have the kids programs, and our goal should be, and we have Team T-Town, our goal should be to feed all of the local teams so that we have a healthy, thriving club culture with, you know, there shouldn't be one super team. There should be teams right. to compete against each other because if you don't have teams to compete against, there's no point in having a team. Um, and so I'm a big believer in, in you know, in, in T-Town, Team T-Town being a feeder as people get into that more elite level feeding out to Andy's program, feeding out to your program, um, feeding out to Kim Geist's programs, feeding out to Star Trek, wherever it is that we can feed, um, you know, I, I think that's a really important role we can play, but I'd, I'd love to hear how you think that should work. Yeah, it, I, I think it's the only way, you know, I think uh, sometimes we were trying to, 
uh, like with the, for example, the ODP program, I think we were trying to pattern ourselves maybe after uh, like a Great Britain program where we were centralizing our development programs. Britain's too big of a country, you know, it's a 3000 mile flight to get to our only in, indoor velodrome. And that's just not feasible for a developing athlete. And, uh, you know, uh, Sprinting is a little bit different too, because I mean, if you don't just de- if you don't develop the basic physical characteristics that you need, you can't go race. I mean, you go and you 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 try to you try to qualify, and you're you're out in the first you know you're out in the first round, or you don't even get to get to the first round if you don't qualify. So, uh, road programs are you know a little bit different, or even track endurance where you're going to ride in the pack and you get that racing experience, but. Yeah, I think it's the only way it can happen in the, in the states is to ha- have it centered around the clubs, uh, perhaps some regional training centers, you know, uh, around the, the velodromes, the 23 active velodromes, um, coaches that are at the at those, very similar to the Australian system where they have this uh, the state programs, I think, where there's five states in Australia, I'm not really sure, but five or six states, and they each have their own state program. So you, you know, you decentralize the program, you have the clubs, the strong regional training centers. And then when riders get to a very high level where they're knocking on the door of being able to keep compete at the international level, only then do they start uh, their, you know, should we start centralizing the program? Joan, any follow up to that or? Nah, I, I, <laughs> I, I, want, I think that's a good point for you to jump in with what I know is tickling your brain. Well, lots of things in, in, in that. And Andrew and I could probably sit here for, you know, days and go on about what you say, about what could be done, be done different. But one of the things that I really liked back, back at the start of that was like, you know, the point that you made of when you're at that level for USA cycling, from an elite perspective, when you're ready to go to international competition and perform, not just go to collect your Jersey, ride a 200 in the first round and go home, but really actually perform. USA Cycling will support you. And I think one of the things that gets lost a lot because our country is so big and we don't race against each other all that often is, you know, where that level actually is, right? And, you know, James James rocked up and, and got his 9-9 last year and was absolutely flying. He's been the best in the country for, for a number of years. And it's like, you know, no matter how good you are to some extent, you still get to your first couple Pan Ams in your first couple Nations Cups, World Cups, and there's still so much to learn, right? There's still so much that you have to go through and so much that you got to come back and adjust and up up your game and then go back and make another make another attempt at it. And, you know, yeah, we can do a lot of it at home. You, there, there's so much you can do. And I think the biggest thing in, in my mind is just having that right attitude, right? And because that doesn't matter how fast you go. If you approach USA cycling or probably any NGB with the wrong attitude of, Hey, I, I need you to do X, Y, and Z for me. Um, you know, you, you're not going to get a favor, favorable response. The, uh, a Chloe Digert of the world doesn't rock up to Jim Miller and say, you need to do this, that, and the other thing for me, she, she rocks up and she says, I want, I'm hell bent on a coaching on, on a accomplishing this goal, that goal, and the other thing, how can we do it together? And I think that that's a big kind of cultural thing that needs to shift because I think we spend too much time trying to just be taller than the next guy in this country and still realizing how short we are in the sprint world compared to the rest of the world. You know, 9-2 and 9-9 and are light years apart. You're, you're, you're waving at uh, Harry Leverson as he goes by you. Um, but coming back to the development side of things, you know, the, the ODP, that, that was, that was an interesting project from my perspective. I, um, I, a lot of what you were saying about a kind of state style or regional style system that focused on education stuff. I presented to USA cycling in 2018, a 10 year step-by-step plan of how to, how to accomplish that and how to accomplish that for, minimal investment focusing on leveraging your your coaches and your programs and your teams and your local velodromes and you know creating from a grassroots level up that that pipeline starting from the very bottom 
And ultimately they went with Lee's idea, you know, and what became the ODP because it came with money. Right. And, and my option right. didn't come with money. And I think that they jumped a few too many steps ahead and they talked about a lot of coaching education, but the only thing that happened there was, you know, that one talk that they did at junior nationals that year. And then nothing else ever came of that. And that was definitely a lot of Lee selling his, his personal ideas and stuff. And it wasn't really about, you know, the, the development type stuff that you're talking about, the really basic, like, okay, here's a 14 year old, tell them to go play soccer for a little bit while they ride their bike and, and get faster. But, you know, you had a lot of, from, from sheer numbers and talent, you had a, a lot of kids that were ID'd involved with and, you know, on the radar of, of the ODP. And now we, we, so we had the ODP, which was, privately, you know, donor funded for the whole thing. And I think a lot of the money got blown through in a lot of those camps. Like you said, traveling cross country is, is a, is a big ask and being coached remotely by one coach cross country is a big ask, um, especially at that age. And now we have the ODA, which is very much athlete funded, not at, at, at least on the surface, right? There's scholarships and stuff available, but big contrast in those two, the execution of those two systems. And again, kind of jumping in at that, that middle upper end of the pipeline, not so much the, the grassroots side of it, like we're talking about here, but you know, you had a lot of athletes that were ID'd and, and on the radar of the ODP. And so I was wondering what you, in your experiences with it, what you thought worked about the ODP, what didn't work about the ODP and, you know, what are your thoughts on the, on the ODA and kind of the new option that's out there and, you know, how much does this announcement of these programs and these, because, <laughs> you know, you've been around the sport a long time. I, I race with your son Epps. So we've, we've seen a wide range of USA cycling's um, programs come, come and go over the last 20, 30 years. So to some extent, there is no surprise that there is a new version of this. And I know there'll be another new version in another 24 to 36 months, but you know, anyway, ODP, what do you think? ODA, what do you think? And, you know, programs coming up, what, how, how does this impact what you guys do on uh, on planning for 2021? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, I think uh, with the ODP, um, not to dwell on a program that, that's, that's come and gone too long, but I think uh, the, the biggest mistake I saw with the ODP is, uh, I, I call it putting the crown on the rider when they're not there yet. You know, we, we named these kids again, we centralized a program when, you know, we had riders that were doing 10, six, 10, eight, that kind of range, um, which is, which is great. And they certainly have potential, but again, I think we're, you know, centralizing those, those riders too early. Again, we're ne neglecting the, we neglected the ODP neglected the coaching education aspect of it. Um, yeah, you know, I, so I was, yeah. I was not a fan of the yeah. culture and the attitudes that stemmed out of those kids the instant they got named to the ODP. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, but a lot of that stems from, from, from leadership. You need leadership with good culture to keep that driving forward in a good way. But yeah, no, I, I just wanted to second that I did not. And, and, and I like that term putting the crown on too early. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to steal that and, and use it. I hope that's okay. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but you know, so again, it's, it's so early the centralization. I, I think that's got the decentralization is really the way to go with the ODP program. Um, as, as far as the, the new ODA program, um, you know, I, I listened to Jim Miller's presentation uh, the other night that he gave to a, in front of a, a junior, a junior group. Um, I do, I do think Jim recognizes, you know, he, he spoke, you know, wasn't speaking directly to the sprint program, but he, he spoke to the road, road development program and you know he recognized that there are clubs and teams out there uh such as hot tubes and lux and uh well there's i don't know what it is now it was extra g 2020 but they're they're great development programs out there with strong coaching and stuff and he you know it's his intent i think is to allow them to continue to uh develop their riders because they've seen, you know, obviously we've had huge success on the USA cycling's had huge success on the road, you know, with Quinn Hatfield and, or not uh, Quinn, but Quinn Simmons, Quinn Simmons. and uh, uh, 
the other, the other juniors and the U23 athletes, exceptional performance there. Um, the sprint program, like we said, is a little bit different than, than the road program. You know, I think once you get a road rider to a certain level, you can throw it, you know, kind of the way to, you have to throw them in the bunch and that's the way they're going to, they're going to learn where the, the, the track sprinter is not going to have that opportunity. But yeah, I'm, I'm uh, excited about the ODA. Um, have we changed anything in our program? You know, are we trying to get push riders towards the ODA program? Uh, no, not not really. Um, you know, we, we feel like uh, we're doing a, a pretty good job um, of, of, of a lot of things already that the ODA is doing. And we have a setting where we have the riders, you know, in-house right here. Um, they're not traveling back and forth and, and, and chasing camps and that kind of thing. Um, you know, and we, we can do that uh, for, for two reasons. Number one, we're confident uh, that if we can bring a rider to a certain level, that USA Cycling is indeed going to offer that high level of support for them. Um, and then the second reason is we're confident, you know, that we have the facility, we have uh, the sports science, the psych, you know, help from uh, sports psychologists. Um, you know, we, we do the performance monitoring, we keep a lot of data, uh, and we're right here in T-Town where there's a lot of racing opportunity with the UCI series and that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing is, you know, we, we're, the Valley is rich with a lot, a lot of really good schools and, uh, you know, we, we encourage our riders to get an education. So we feel like right here, you know, we have a really great training ground and preparation ground without, without, uh, chasing these other things. So, um, so yeah, no, we're not, you know, trying to prepare riders to go to the ODA. Um, you know, we feel like we're doing a good job with it here. Can we get better? Absolutely. We, you know, we're, we're striving every day to get better, you know, but, uh, and we, you know, I think that we're making some strides in this year with COVID. It's, it's been an interesting year because we touched on earlier, it's given us a lot of opportunity to, to evaluate how we've been doing things and improve on those things. So, but yeah, that's, kind of where I stand on the, the ODA and ODP programs. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and you made a good point, Andrew. Like, you do have access to some really top-notch racing here locally, right, that that some some kids, other other markets might not have because, you know, there isn't a UCI block elsewhere. And, and here we are blessed in that we have the opportunity to put our local riders up against the world's best, you know, pretty consistently – over the summer in a normal year. So I think, you know, that is one really, uh, I think, great, great point that you made about, you know, why your program is thriving here is that there's all of the components. It's not just, Mm -hmm. it's not just, yeah, we have a great weight room and we have super nice watt bikes. We all, you also have a place to, to do the real world implementation of your programming. Um, so, and I, I think that matters. Right. Absolutely. hundred percent. It, it does. And, uh, you know, thanks to you guys, you know, we have a, a great, you know, their programs continue to grow and, um, the UCI racing is a huge thing, uh, for us, um, you know, for our more advanced riders. And then, and then this, the, the racing opportunity for our endurance guy, this, this community is just, it's the perfect setting to develop a cyclist. And, uh, we're very fortunate to have that. So I think that, that that's a nice segue into our, our, our sort of look at, at the international state of the sport. And I know Andy and, Andy and Lynn Monroe had a really fascinating and, and intense, I'd say, at points conversation about changes we're seeing at the international level of, of, the, of, of the sport and, you know, bigger gears, faster times. And I know, Andy, you're much smarter on this topic than I am because you're an actual sprinter. So... So take it away, like like that. That's a great, you know, a great segue into the discussion of like where where we see the international level of sport. Yeah, you know, so Andrew, you've been around the sport, you know, longer longer than I have, and and here in T town, you know, we've seen su- such a transition from everyone trying. I, I still remember, I think it was two thousand four. I was at my first elite world championships in Melbourne, and they. Uh, <laughs> Gideon Massey and I were riding the Kieran qualifying heats and we were having this great debate between the two of us because I just said, screw it. I'm like, I'm going to go big. I'm not afraid to throw on a big gear and really let it fly. This is the world's Kieran. It's going to be fast. 
and I rode 98. I rode 5114 and was like, man, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get that gear going in a Kieran with a motor drop off and Gideon sits there and he's like, no, nah, man, it's too big. It's too big. I, I, I gotta go lighter so I can spin. I'm like, Oh, what are you going to ride? He's like, I'm going to ride 97. So I can spin. We're talking about one less than one gear inch difference. And like, that was where we were. And that was just 16 years ago. Right. And it was like, Oh man, 98, 97, the big, the big debate. Now it's like 128 or 138. You know, they all kind of feel the same after that point. So which one am I gonna, am I gonna go on? But you know, the gears are bigger, the technology's bigger, the times are faster. Um, you know, the, the racing styles and the rule changes, which I am not a fan of, um, you know, has, has changed drastically in the last couple of years. But if you look at it, broad strokes, I was just wondering what, what have been some of your favorite changes and evolutions in the sport changes that our own track in, in the racing. And is there anything from the past that you miss the most or w wish was still around? Yeah. Um, yeah. The, the gear that is funny. You're talking about the small gears. I remember, uh, my coach in the day, Roger Young, uh, I remember him telling me at T-Town, he says, if you get a really, you know, strong tailwind on the back stretch, he goes, you might go to a 94, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's changed quite a bit. I, I, I love the big gearing. I think it's, it's changed, changed, obviously changed the sport and the dynamic of, of sprinting quite a bit. Um, you know, back in, in my day was jump late and the guy was coming around you, you know, you make a right turn and try to prevent him from, from doing so. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, the sprinting is, has become cleaner. Uh, it's obviously longer because of the, because of the bigger gear ratios, uh, places a little different emphasis on the, uh, the energy systems and how you prepare for the sprint. Um, you know, uh, I think I think the cool, the really cool thing, one of the things about modern day sprinting, when you know, you hear a lot of people say, "Well, you know, it's not tactical anymore; it's just a long drag race." I, I find just the opposite is the case, uh, because of the bigger gears and because of the longer sprints and, and the way people can hold speed tactics have become so much more important. It's subtle; it's not as quite as visible as it may may have used to be, but tactics are are so much more important. You know. To, to do a high speed stall on the big gears and the, the time, the rush, it's become very, very different and even more pronounced uh, than it, than it used to be. Um, so I, I love that. I love the new technology. I love the science, you know, I'm a sports scientist in my educational background. So I, I love the science and I'm, you know, I'm learning every day. There's a, there's some fantastic new stuff coming out in the sport science field. Um, and it's, you know, so it's exciting. I love to keep up with the science and, 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 and weed out stuff that I don't think will work and apply with our riders. And then, you know, we experiment uh, with, with, with stuff that uh, we, we do think will make us better. You know, we're constantly changing. So I, I really love that. That that's what keeps me up at night. You know, I, I love, I love studying and, and improving and trying to learn more so that I can give those, uh, give that information to our riders, pass that to our riders. Um, things, uh, Let's see things I, I, I miss um, I miss in racing, I guess would be um, I, I kind of like I, I think you, you talked about attitude a little bit earlier. Um, I think I, I like I, I missed the day at T-Town when when the internationals would come in and it would kind of be a USA versus the world kind of thing. You know, you know, it's kind of like we had the attitude, you know, you're going to step on our turf, you know, you're going to. You know, when you step across that blue, you know, roll across that blue line, you're on the track, you know, we're going to, we're going to hit you right on the mouth and you may be better and you may be, you may beat us, but you're going to be in for a dog fight. So I kind of miss that kind of attitude about it. Um, you, you know, I think, you know, there, there's uh, a little bit of like, uh, well, we, you know, you obviously need to respect and, and uh, your, your opponents, you know, I think, you know, I, I do miss, a little bit of the fight in the sprint. Um, I guess the biggest thing at, at T-Town I miss, you know, are the, are the really big crowds, you know, and uh, I know you guys are making great efforts and I think we're going to see, you know, the crowds coming back in, but I miss the big crowds back in the eighties when we were three deep and um, there were a lot of people there that weren't necessarily uh, cycling um, uh, 
cycling experts. They were, you know, just the general public and they come to see a bike race and they got turned on by it. And, and, uh, you know, sometimes they'd be yelling. It was kind of like very similar to going to an Eagles game, you know, and it wasn't always a friendly atmosphere. Sometimes they were cheering for you. And sometimes, you know, you had that pretty tough skin. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. The backstreet rowdies and stuff. So I miss, I miss that at T town and, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we can bring that back a little bit too, but, uh, so those are just some of the things, but the sport is changing and, you know, 99% 99% of it's for, for the positive. And, uh, I think track cycling is going to, is going to grow and it's going to grow in the States. We, you know, we're having great success. Uh, the women's, the women's track endurance, uh, it's had great success and, you know, it's, I think it's up to us and up to the riders and coaches to, to develop, you know, the sprinters and the, the men's endurance squad. We got to, you know, we obviously with Ashton have had huge success there too, but, uh, particularly with the sprint program, you know, it's up to us to, uh, the riders and the and the local coaches to bring it up to a standard, to, you know, where we're we're again at the the international level. And I think that's an excellent point for us to jump to a quick commercial break, and then when we come back, uh, let's talk about that more um, because I think that's a that's a a really interesting topic as well. So we're going to take a quick commercial break to recognize our sponsor, B Braun, and then we will be right back. Talk of the T-Town podcast is brought to you through the generous support of B. Braun Medical Incorporated. A global leader in infusion therapy and pain management, B. Braun develops, manufactures, and markets innovative medical products to the healthcare community. They are also strong believers in supporting the quality of life in the communities where their employees work and live. We here at the Velodrome have a special affinity for B. Braun because not only are they innovators in the medical field, but they like to race bikes. Every season, you can catch the B. Braun team competing in our corporate challenge, and man, does their team bring out the stoke. In 2019, they packed the stands with employees cheering for their team, and we can't wait to see them out on bikes again soon. And we're back with the Talk of the T-Town podcast. Uh, I'm Andy Lakatosh with John Hanscom. We got Andrew Harris on today. Uh, so working backwards from what you said right before the the commercial break, you know, a- Ashton Lambie jumping up and being being a real phenom, you know, that's a perfect example of what we touched on earlier of, you know, USA Cycling didn't develop him. He didn't come through a pipeline, you know, and granted he's a supreme talent, right? But he rocked up and delivered some performances that said, hey, I'm I'm close to that level you know, now, now can you help me? Right. And it's definitely been a coordinated effort to get him up to that world's podium, um, uh, a handful of times, but I think that's a great, a, a great example of, you know, get, get ready to do a lot of it yourself. And then, you know, mm-hmm. because that last, that last 3% is the worst percent of the entire thing. So you definitely got to be, be be ready for that but you know i totally <laughs> as you know i'm 100 percent a not in my house person when it comes to t-town like i will go down swinging and fighting to stop you from from getting by me to the to the and probably over the 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 gray area limit of of the rules and line i still remember roberto chiapa used to come every year and the track used to pay for his ticket for him to come and he would just whoop on us and take all of our prize money and one year i just said enough right like you're you're not mm-hmm. you're not getting by me in this next race come hell or high water and um you know it made for a very entertaining race you know he was very mad at me for the next six weeks after that and told you know told me by flipping me off every time he saw me but you know some people ask me they're like why'd you do it i'm like because i'm not just gonna roll over and let him beat us on our track like if he wants it he's gonna have to really fight to take it from me and yeah i don't think we have enough of that type of attitude again i probably should not have pinched him at the rail for the entire last lap but you know i think you can take the attitude away of just you know not not in my not in my house and i mean i i caught the tail end of the three deep around the rail in the late 90s and into the early 2000s and yeah there's nothing better than 
that type of energy coming from outside the track inside the track it makes the the racing energy better and it all just feeds on itself you know the biggest advantage we had in the 80s and 90s was there wasn't anything else to do in lily high valley you had the velodrome in a cornfield and you know then there were more cornfields there's there's a lot more stuff to do now uh but i do think we are on a good a good path but i think a huge part of that is as joan and i discussed on a regular basis our local athletes our local talent getting engaged with the community, not the cycling community, but just the general community, you know, uh, helmet safety programs and just, you know, and then also I think a huge part of it falls on the local riders um, conversely in get your friends to come out and watch your race. I used to, you know, harangue people starting on Tuesday night already. Hey, I'm racing on Friday. You're coming out to watch, right? Like I'll, I'll make sure tickets are at the window for you. Like, come out and watch and you know the i still have a few friends from when i was racing from completely outside the sport whether from the restaurant industry or high school and i still occasionally come out to watch bike races because they know it's just a fun outdoor thing to do on a on a friday night and you know i think that the athletes it's all very symbiotic right if the racing's good on the track the spectators are into it and if we promote the local people more people want to come out but if the local people promote the venue and come out and race, you know, that, that, that all feeds. So I definitely think it's, I don't like pointing fingers. I think we all need to take some ownership of it and do the best that we can to continue to grow this place. Cause it is a multi-year process and, you know, it takes a lot of different, different avenues to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. So Andrew, I want to circle back to, to there's this theme happening, right. Of, of the T-Town versus the world and, and the sort of the local talent, the local elite talent, taking on that top level, top level talent from 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 GB Australia, New Zealand, and and as an elite coach, um, a lot a lot of times people talk about imposter syndrome, right? And and oh, am I good enough to to do this, and or am I just a pretender? And um, and and I and I think you know athletes succeed more when they overcome that. Um, so as an elite coach, work, working with athletes, targeting racing against Australia, GB, New Zealand, here at home or away at the World Cup, Nations Cup, international level, um, how do you handle that with your athletes um, when it's maybe a bit of a disappointment that they they did line up and and to Andy's point, not necessarily come out on the side of the of the of the podium that they thought they would or hoped they would. What, what's your tactic for dealing with that? Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, I, I find that super interesting. Yeah, um, I, you know, I, I think that uh, that begins like one of the fir- the first day, you know, uh, with with an athlete, and uh, you know, with with our program, you know not just the elite athletes, but our, our, our very youngest, you know, our 13, 14 year olds. Um, we, we have a saying, we say, be elite where you are. So um, being elite, you know, whatever level you are, you know, so if it's a beginning rider uh, that is uh, just starting out in the sport, you know, be elite at, at learning the techniques, be elite at, at, at learning um, the rules of bike racing and whatever, whatever the very beginning is all the way up to the, the Olympic level athlete, um, be elite at that level or wherever you are. Um, and we, we call being elite is basically just being the best version of you. Um, and if you do those things, there's no shame, you know, there's, uh, you know, if you're, if you're doing absolutely everything you possibly can to be the best you can be, and you've, you've covered all the bases and you've checked all the boxes and you've done all the, done all the work, there's, there's no, there's no shame. And, and the things, you know, you take away so much. I always said that sport is, is the best education. You know, you're going to le- learn things like work ethic, perse- perseverance, uh, the will to compete, um, integrity, all these things, you know, come, I think the best lessons, you know, some, some of the best lessons come from sport. Um, and, you know, whether you're a, a 14 year old junior and you don't succeed there or you're an Olympic athlete and you get, you get, you get beat there as long as you've brought the best version of you and uh, you have you have nothing to, to be ashamed of. Um, uh, I think that's, yeah, that's, 
that's one of the great things that sports can bring, right? And and I'm a huge fan of this this podcast. I've referenced it probably every week that we've recorded one of these. Is there's a there's a podcast out of the UK called the High Performance Podcast, and and really what they talk about is is what is high performance because high performance you maybe learn it in sport, right? You maybe learn it as an athlete. Um, I learned it in ballet school, um, but high performance doesn't necessarily just mean Olympic level athletes, right? It's the it's a high performance mindset of where you are. And so it's it sort of aligns very nicely with what you just said, Andrew. It's, it's that mm-hmm. mentality of I'm going to be the best where I am. So, you know, it could be I'm going to be the best cat four. I'm going to be the best student. I'm going to bring the, the, the daily practices behind that. Um, whatever right. they may be for your specific place, right, where where you are, whether it's a focus as a student or in your in your workplace um, or on the track, um, it's 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 fostering a, a high performance mindset um, that I think is really important and helps overcome those those potential disappointments. Right, right. Yeah, we we use a saying. You know, we uh, either you you rise or fall through your level of preparation. So as long as you've done you know the preparation to its fully, you've done everything you possibly can to prepare yourself for that moment. Uh, you know, win or lose, you know, success or failure, you know, you have nothing to be to be ashamed of, and, and uh, that's basically it. So, I think. That wraps up the super heavy portion of our programming. Uh, we, <laughs> well, I think it's uh, those got nice and deep on some stuff. We like to end on a light-hearted note. I think we're calling it Mora's Minute now, if we're not mistaken. Where Andrew, I'm sorry, you are now going to be subjected to the wacky questions, and so uh, it's like the speed round of of wacky questions. So Mora, we turn it over to you. All right, Andrew, who would play you in a movie about your life? <laughs> Gosh, um, <laughs> that's a tough one for me because I, I, I watch so little movies. I don't even know. Who, uh, Say Brad the, Pitt, uh, Andrew. Uh, Say Brad Pitt. <laughs> Say Brad Pitt. <laughs> All right, Brad Pitt. Uh, Brad Pitt works. Uh, what's your biggest pet peeve? Biggest pet peeve? Oh gosh, I've got so many. I, I get. I guess uh, coaches usually they, do. We usually yeah, have a long list of stuff that just ticks us off. Yeah, I, I would. I would say one of my biggest things is uh, with with track cycling is is talk like talking or chatting in the pace line and warm up with the juniors. That's one of my uh, biggest pet peeves. All right, Andrews athletes, are you listening? No more chit chat. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll do you one better. Talking in an actual like scratch race on the track, like how do you have time to talk? You should be right. racing. Get out, go. Right. All right, right. more next. All right, favorite place you've traveled to? Fa- um, I, I think uh, Belgium. Uh, uh, last year I went to to Ghent, Belgium, a great little town. Um, you know, had some good quality racing there, but it's just the culture, the cycling culture there, and just the, just just the people. I love the country. I love to, you know, plan to go back there pretty soon. Actually, yeah. So. Amen. I second that. I miss my cyclocross career days when I got to go to Belgium every year and eat chocolate and drink beer and watch bike racing and ride bikes. Right. Yeah. Right. It's Belgium yeah, is was, like a little I, slice I of heaven. I was fortunate there too. After the racing was over, I stayed a day or two and uh, got to enjoy some of the. The, the local product and uh, it's it good time. Yeah. All the local product is good. Yeah. yeah, I haven't been, but it's definitely on the list. And uh, we'll close out with when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, uh, yeah, that's probably easy. Like a professional motorcycle racer. Uh, I, I started my uh, athletic career. I was a motorcycle racer motocross racer and i uh that's how i got into cycling all the the injuries i accumulated over the years of racing motorcycles got me riding the bike to to rehab and that kind of uh, to to rehab my injuries so yeah and i still have i I still have a huge i'm still huge still a huge fan of of motocross and supercross racing and if i wasn't in cycling i'd I'd certainly like to be involved with that sport in, in some in some way and and I'll just jump in to say like that's a really cool and very little known fact about Andrew is that he used to do a lot of a lot of motorcycle racing right and it definitely is a huge factor into what makes him such a great motor pacer to follow out on the track I'll say that I'm very uh, 
just discerning. I'm very picky about who I would actually get behind the motor on. And there's not, not many people in, in, in the world, let alone the, the nation. And Andrew's certainly, certainly one of them because you definitely, and Andrew's son Epps, who used to motor pace us was another one of the few people that I would, I would trust <laughs> Epps, Epps, Epps around 21 was a little bit reckless to be following on, 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 on the motorcycle, mostly because he just rolled out of bed from, from the day before five minutes when he came barreling into the track <laughs> with, with, with the door hanging open on his Jeep because it wouldn't close <laughs> and his, you know, now he's a, he's a state trooper, but um, yeah, you're definitely putting your life in the hands of the driver when you get behind them. And, uh, having a really great handle of track cycling and, and motor motorcycles is an absolute must. And that's a, uh, not a very common, I've seen a lot of bad motor pacers. So. Yeah. Epps told me he was absolutely petrified motor pacing you guys, by the way. <laughs> that's okay. He, he, I mean, most people usually are right. Like, like yeah. I've had a couple of guys behind me going, you know, low nines. I think I had Hugo one time in LA at, at eight, nine and, mm-hmm. It is terrifying. And I mean, like LA is a smooth track. You can hold the line pretty well. There's no bumps. There's no wind like there is in T-Town to catch you and, and blow you around. But you're going that fast and you're like, you know, and especially Hugo is a guy like head down, full tilt boogie. I'm like, he's not going to see if I need to move. He's just going to, he's just going to run the hell into me. Um, so here we go. And uh, yeah, no, Epps, God, he was, he was fantastic though still like laughing with him about those about those those hot tuesday thursday mornings at the track (laughs) well on that note i think we're going to wrap it up for this week's episode andrew thank you so much for joining us uh very very fortunate to have you on and hopefully we can get you back as the season starts to open up in in 2021 and uh yeah have a have a great break and we'll see you in 2021 well, thanks for having me, and I'm, I'm looking forward to a great season. And uh, see you guys soon. Thanks, Andrew. This has been the Talk of the T-Town podcast with hosts Joan Hanscom and Andy Lakatosh. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode, brought to you by B. Braun Medical, Inc. Head on over to our website, thevelodrome.com, where you can check out the show notes and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode.